Thanks for your pro proactive, encouraging support of the bhikkhuni sangha. Yes. So we've got how many bhikkhunis here? Two, and two for the future. There's some and there is. When are you going to ordain? Seminaries five months ago. Uh, so another year and a half. Okay. You know that if you can find Doctor Who, you could actually go forward in time and then ordain. <coughs> so don't waste time. <laughs> Sorry. Would you please answer the questions regarding terms found in the Anapanasati Sutta? Yeah? What is your understanding of sabakaya, first of all? Sabakaya, I mentioned this. When you're watching the breath, they say sabakaya pati sangwedi. Sabakaya is not your body, but the whole of the breath, from beginning to end, end to beginning. That's called sabakaya. It doesn't mean anything to do with your physical body. It means the whole thing we call this uh, in and out breath. The word kaya, translated as body, is the same as something like dhammakaya, the body of dhamma. It doesn't mean a physical body, it means the teachings, the body of evidence in a court of law. And it's the same word, the same body, it means an ac ac accumulation of things. And Padusangwedi, that's to be experiencing it. You feel it. How does Sabakaya Patisangwedi relate to Asasi Samaiti and Sikati and Pasasi Samiti Sikati? That is, you train yourself as you breathe in to be able to see the whole of the breath. You train yourself as you breathe out to see the whole of the breath go out. Very simple. So this is, you're training yourself. How do you train yourself? It doesn't say by putting forth extra effort. After a while, if your mindfulness becomes strong and you are calming down, then you're in this present moment. It's easy to do. This breath is coming in and it goes to its end. There's a gap between the breaths always. And then you see the breath go out again. You train yourself with a skill set to be able to watch your breath very easily. Not just in, out, in, out, in, out. From the very beginning of an in-breath to the end of an in-breath without missing anything. From the beginning of an out-breath to the end of the out-breath without missing anything. It's not that hard to do. As I did mention, that sometimes if you are, say, um, well, if you're just uh, listening to classical music, you have to be there in every moment. So what you're doing is actually seeing from the very beginning of the symphony or whatever, and you're watching every note. You're rather you're listening to every note because it's it's just so delightful. If you miss so one note of the classical music, you find it just um, it uh, the whole thing just falls apart. You need to have the continuous mindfulness of every note when you're hearing the music playing. Okay?
Dear Ajahn Brahm, without becoming a monk or a nun, what are the jhana levels we can achieve? I don't know, because I'm a monk. <laughs> now you can reach all, all of them, all four. No worries. Easy. Yes, of course you can. That's one of the things which I just really rebelled against when I said I heard that some people would not teach jhana to um, the lay community. I remembered when Ayakema came here many, many years ago, and I invited her, you can come and give a talk, you know, to the monks. So she gave a talk to the monks, you know what she talked about? Jhanas. And so afterwards, you know, she said, I apologize, Ajahn if I upset you by talking about jhanas. <laughs> she didn't realize you talk about it all the time. No, we talk about that too. No worries. Because somehow or other, you know, the practice of jhana was just not encouraged by many monks. Ajahn Chah taught it. He wouldn't call it jhana, he called it apana samadhi, which is almost like the, the commentary term for uh, deep meditation for jhanas. But it's part of, our, part of the Eightfold Path. But there's also this one monk when I went to visit um, a monastery in England some years ago, I won't say it was Amrawati. Oops. When I went in there, I was just going into one of the reception areas. I was a monk. And then there was another monk who grabbed me by the shoulder, pulled me aside, and looked around. And I thought, he's going to hand me some Playboy magazine or something. That's what he was, <laughs> he was like behaving like. It's something so secret he wanted to share with me. And he said, Ajahn Brahm, thank you for teaching jhanas. It's almost like it wasn't a done thing at the time. Okay. It's really interesting, this, what you're going on. Okay, very good. <laughs> anyway, so the nice thing about being a monk and a nun, you can be rebellious. In other words, you know you're Vinaya. As long as you know what you're talking about, you know, of course, it's part of the Eightfold Path. Every other page of the suttas, they talk about jhanas. In the Gopika Moggallana Sutta, then uh, after the Buddha passed away, Venerable Ananda was the go-to person uh, answering all people's questions. And somebody came to ask him, this Gopika Moggallana, what, did, what type of meditation did the Buddha recommend? Nanda said, four types of meditation. First jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. It's pretty sort of uh, firm if you look at the suttas and read them for yourself with a decent translation that jhanas is the way to get enlightened for you too. Excellent, yeah. Okay. Oh, you've got a nice friend there. Anyway, dear Ajahn, what is metta meditation? How to do? Uh, that's a, a big question, but basically that when you are uh, even watching your breath, give it kindness. Don't just be mindful, be kindful. 
when you're kindful, even just watching this present moment, this poor present moment, sometimes you hardly pay enough attention to it, too busy planning the future and being burdened by the past. So look at this present moment, ah, oh, poor present moment. May your present moment be happy and well. That's meta-meditation. Meta-meditation is when we had a cement mixer. And I, I, I was the one who arranged to have it purchased because I was doing most of the building work in those early days. I was the only one who could sometimes make it work. Other monks would you know, pull the cord and either break or it just wouldn't fire up. And honestly, what I did, other monks would, they're not here this evening, the old monks, people like Ajahn Brahmadi would confirm this, I would actually just stroke the engine, there we go. And it's Ajahn Brahm here. And you know, may you be happy and well. And I would just pull it, it would work every time. Had loving kindness. Then we're just going over to um, Oslo once. And then I had to get to, I think, the university to give a talk. Uh, but then I got out of the airport quickly enough. But then you know, the boom gates in the car park were stuck. There was a big queue of people trying to get out. And the boom gates weren't opening. So I, I had to. I didn't have a choice. I went up to the boom gate. Nice boom gate. <laughs> and just gave some loving kindness. It opened. <laughs> I think some of the... Uh, the Norwegians were very impressed. But anyway, that's real meta-meditation. Sometimes people know meta-meditation as, um, like, may this be being be happy and well, may somebody else be happy and well, may I be happy and well. And then we start thinking about which one should you start from? If you practice too much, this is what Ajahn Chah's warning to us. When we first came to the Western countries, he said, be careful of uh, doing too much meta-meditation in the West. Otherwise, you monks will end up having babies. <laughs> I mean, not, you know, yourself, but, you know, getting married and having babies. That's what Ajahn Chah actually said. Because sometimes you have to know about the difference between loving-kindness and attachment. And may all beings be happy and well. And real happiness and well-being doesn't mean having relationships. Unless if you have happiness and well-being, not just for one person, for every being. And not just for human beings. For little um, millipedes which crawl around. It's very nice seeing many of you, you know, trying to save those millipedes, you know, sweeping them up very gently and just um, putting them somewhere where they'll be safe. It's always very beautiful to see the acts of kindness like that. So because of that, you can see those, that's meta-meditation. But after a while, if you do it formally, you know, where may this be, being be happy and well, may that being be happy and well, sometimes it's important to disembody the meta-meditation. Not may a being be happy and well, but you change it to all beings, and after all beings, just loving kindness with no object, like a sun which shines on everything. It doesn't consider the beings, it just considers to be nice and warm and caring for all the beings who, who happen to be underneath it, without any distinction. 
and our beautiful loving kindness. It doesn't have an object, it's just out there for warming people. And of course, you are included in that. And eventually, that loving kindness becomes so strong. It doesn't have any one particular object. It's not even all beings, it's just loving kindness without any object. And that's where it becomes this beautiful nimitta. I don't know why, but it always seems to be like golden nimitta. At least that's what I practice. And from there, it's pretty easy to go into a jhana. It's so powerful and beautiful and it's delicious. You know, once uh, I remember we used to teach weekend retreats at this um, Catholic, uh, it was like a, a holiday home for the priests. But it was run by these two nuns, they're very old, but you know, for the Buddhist uh, community, when we held a retreat there, you know, we're not demanding, it's very easy to look after us, only have two meals a day, you know, a breakfast and a lunch. So they thought it was really nice to have us there. They didn't have to work so hard. But I remember going there one evening, really busy, doing building work, uh, on the Friday and a Friday afternoon, then going over there for the Friday evening, not that far away, it was on Penguin Road on Safety Bay. So, did you go to those ones? Yeah. But I remember one day thinking, what am I going to teach this evening? I try not to plan what I'm going to teach, but I remember that evening, I thought, well, let's do something different. So, should I do loving kindness or breath meditation? Let's try both at the same time. Just use your breath. May my breath be happy and well. My breath be free of suffering. My breath go in so softly. May I never try and stop my breath or tell it how long it should be or how short it should be. And may my breath be happy and well inside my body. I really got off on it. And I remember I just had some great meditations. But what I really remember was in a night time. I was really tired out, so I went to bed. But I dreamt of loving the breath and those beautiful dreams. But they got so strong, I woke up, didn't sleep much that night, but I didn't worry. You were just blissing out in your room. It was a great time combining loving kindness with the breath. Why not? Dear Ajahn, what is jhana? What is jhana? It's fantastic. <laughs> is that a good enough answer? It's what happens when your body disappears and you're really mindful. You can't hear anything. Oh, okay. It's a good story because I told this to someone today. Um, I don't mind saying the name of this person either. His name was Greg. Uh, he was one of our members who came to our Buddhist society many years ago. And he'd only usually meditate maybe 20 minutes, 25 minutes at home. But then one Sunday afternoon, there was nothing on the TV. There was nothing really interesting. So he told his wife, I'm going into the bedroom to meditate for a short while. After an hour, he still hadn't come out of the room. So his wife went into the room to check on him. And he was sitting there, perfectly still, too still. He wasn't breathing. Ah. 
my husband's dead. So she rang up, zero, zero, zero. That's the emergency line. I think my husband's dead. And so the, the ambulance was sent. It was a Sunday afternoon. And the ambulance, you know, the sirens roaring. Do, 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 do. They came to the house and the medics rushed in and they took his pulse. There was no pulse. No breath. He was dead. So they put him in the stretcher, and they, the gurney, whatever you call it, and they put him in the back of the ambulance, rushing through all the red lights, and his wife was in the back of the ambulance with him. There was no signs of life. And so they put him in the emergency room. That's the Charles Gardner Hospital, for those of you who know Perth. And in that emergency department, they wheeled him in, his one bit of good fortune was the doctor on duty that afternoon. He was of Indian descent, not Sri Lankan, no, Indian, Indian. And uh, he always had been told by his parents that some yogis can suspend all their life activities in deep meditation. And he looked at him, his life activities were suspended. He put on the ECG, flat line, EEG, flat line. There's no signs of life. Double flat line. And then there was something strange. No, not quite what should be happening. But this man's body was warm. And if you look at the Chulavetala Sutta, that's what the Buddha said that the difference between a dead person and one who is in a jhana is your body is still warm if you're alive. If it goes cold, it's not a jhana, you're dead. So if you say you see um, Venerable Chanda sitting there and there's no sign of any life at all, <laughs> no breath, <laughs> just feel her body first of all. If it's warm, don't send her to the hospital. Don't send her to the morgue. Because imagine what would have happened. That guy, and he was just in a deep meditation, this guy Greg, if they'd have sent him to the morgue, then they put him in the morgue, and then when he came out of his meditation, oh, there'd be two morgue attendants would be dead. <laughs> Especially if he did that you know, towards the end of October, which is now, October the 31st. Imagine doing like, doing like that. You take Prem, and he's so still and peaceful, and you think he's dead, and you put him in the morgue, and when, he's, <laughs> when he wakes up, ah! <laughs> anyway, so, so they put many times defibrillators on him. Nothing worked. In those days, I mean, doctors keep saying they don't do defibrillators these days. They do, like, injecting, was it adrenaline or something? But anyway, in those days... It was the defibrillators, these electric shocks, which, you know, just make you come off the, the, uh, uh, the stretcher or the, the bed an inch or two. Really quite violent. And all the time they were trying to revive him. Nothing was working. It was two lines, level, flat line. Until he decided to come out of his meditation, like sometimes you're meditating, you get very peaceful. And then, you know, you just, okay, time to open my eyes. That's what he did. He opened his eyes, and then beep, beep, beep. The two 
the machines work normally. And then, this, uh, this is not making up, this is a true story. And then the, um, he looks around, what am I doing in the hospital? I was in my bedroom. And the doctor gave him a thorough examination. There was nothing wrong with him, nothing at all. And so the doctor just said, well, you might as well walk home. He, he didn't get a lift back home, he walked home. He wasn't, wasn't that far. You know, after that experience, after being dead for a couple of hours. And I asked him, I said, well, you know, what was happening during that experience, that time? Did you feel the defibrillators? The electric shocks? He said, no, not at all. Did you hear the sirens? No. Dee, 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 dee. No. What were you doing? I was just flitting out inside. Perfectly aware, but just not of his body. And he said, well, was there anything which was unpleasant about that experience? And that's what he said, yes, there was. The scolding he got from his wife on the walk home. <laughs> Don't you ever do that again. <laughs> you scared the life out of me. I thought you were dead. <laughs> that's a jhana. That's usually like a fourth jhana. That's what happens. In those deep meditations, you're so still, you don't need to breathe. And your brain, not your mind, but your brain becomes perfectly still. So they do put an EEG on it, it flatlines. But you're very, very, very aware. It's great stuff, John. You don't have to be afraid either, because you're perfectly safe. Okay, here's another story of Janus. That's why I keep having all these questions I don't answer. Is um, there was this was in the time of the Buddha, a monk in the forest, meditating, got into jhana, and some villagers went past, and they were you know, quite devout Buddhists, and so they saw there's a monk. He looks like he's dead because they couldn't see any breathing, couldn't see any. Um, uh, blood pulsing through his body, no pulse. So they thought, we can't just leave like a monk just to be eaten by the wild animals. So they decided to make a funeral pyre just there and then. There's lots of, of wood in the forest. And so they made a funeral pyre, they put the monk on top. <laughs> it's in the sutras. And then they, they lit it and they did some chanting, they didn't know much chanting. But they knew enough to just do something, and they thought that's better than nothing. And once the fire was established and the, the monk was being cremated, then off they went to do their business. You can't spend all day uh, cremating a monk, they've got other things to do. Life, even in those days, was very busy. And so you can imagine how they felt when the following morning that same monk came into their village on arms round. Not even his robe was uh, charred. There's something about those jhanas. You're protected. The fire couldn't burn him. Which is one of the other reasons. If you know, they don't put you in the morgue, but they cremate you straight away, and you just you didn't really die, but you've been in a jhana. Then when they open the box again, ah, oh, it's me again. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can't be killed. Now you think, okay, that's in the suitors. 
You know, is that true? But, because you know, I've been around a long time now, I would never say about a monk or a nun who's alive who could do those things, because if I did, you know, the, some scientists will come and torture you to prove it's true or it's false. But there was an Indonesian monk. His name was Sudamo. He was a monk over in Thailand. And I met him a couple of times. But his story, he told me his story. He started off in his life, he just wanted to be like a hermit, like a rishi. So he went in some remote jungle part of, uh, of Indonesia, Java, and he just went to a nice quiet place, sat down in the jungle, and meditated. And he said, what an experience. And he described it, his, his words. You know, he wasn't an English speaker, but he knew enough words of English. He said he saw this beautiful star come into his meditation. And it was like a princess. And he married that princess. He united with it. With it. And that's a typical, like, limited experience. And then he sat there for days. He knew it was days. It was like timeless for him. But when he came out of his meditation, he noticed the area where he was sitting had changed. He hadn't been moved, but what had happened, he found out from the villagers, there was a flood there. And he'd been under about a metre or two metres of water for days. Of course, you know, because it was a jhana, he wasn't sort of uh, suffocated or drowned. He was just happily meditating there, with his body underwater. And when he came out afterwards, you know, eventually he became a monk. I remember meeting him in Wapawan. And he was a very powerful monk. That was his experience of first time getting into jhanas. But I also had a friend there. She was one of these um, Thai princesses. She was rebelling against uh, the culture, so she had much more affinity with the Western monks. That's how we got to know her. And she told me that she went to a class with this monk, uh, I think, you know, one afternoon a week or something. And she said she was in there, it was very popular, you can understand why. He was in there, she was in there, and he was teaching. She had her eyes closed, but then she thought something weird was happening. You have a, like a feeling that something's not right or strange. So she opened her eyes. And she told me, and I've got no reason to doubt her at all, I knew her for a long while, and she's not the sort of person who would lie about this. She said, this monk was looking at one of the other meditators, and rays of light were coming out of his eyes into this other meditator. It was like a, a psychic power, just bathing this monk with laser eyes. Now, one of the reasons why we don't do that, why Venerable Ayachanda never does that, because the result was that she was so scared of this monk with laser eyes, she just got up 
and ran out and never went back again. Psychic powers are scary. Has Ajahn Brahm got psychic powers? Do you want to see one? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the Buddha said, the best psychic powers, the only ones he really praises, was the ability to teach. <laughs> okay, anyway. My question is about, I don't know if I answered that question completely, but it was an interesting answer. My question is about observing the whole body of the breath. I can notice the air flow in and out through my nostrils, then I notice my chest expand and contract with the air in and out. I feel some pressure applied around the chest too. Is this what is called the body of the breath? No. You see the breath? Uh, maybe a third of the way in. And then 33.5% in. As you watch it just all the time, you can see it as a continuous experience. One after the other. So I just, so I just my finger, just you watch it from the beginning to the end. And watch it go back again. If you watch it like this and you miss a moment, that's not the full awareness of the breath. It's not sabakaya. How to really relax the mind, especially when there are so many small noises. After a while, because the small noises aren't important, then what happens is that you just discard them. You just relax. Of course there are small noises here, but they're not important. And even your brain is only, um, is only wired to notice big changes. Small changes you don't notice. And after a while, all those small sounds and those small feelings just disappear. I said to someone today, every time I do my body scan, I always notice my bottom is sore. It's just the, the weight. Maybe too much weight, I don't know, but it's always uh, the pressure on my bottom, like on the cushion, it always feels sore. Not really sore, but I can feel the pressure there. But then after a few moments, you don't feel anything at all. Because it's not important. It doesn't change. If there was a sudden change in the feeling of my bottom, of course I would notice it. But when it just stays the same, even though it's quite a sort of a strong feeling there, because it doesn't change, and after a few moments it just disappears. You can sit here without feeling or worrying about my, my butt. My butt looks after itself, okay butt? How much time morning and evening should we dedicate to meditating when we go home. This is, you haven't gone home yet, you're living in the future. <laughs> That's why someone used to ask me, when is the best time to meditate? Now. When is the worst time to meditate? Later. <laughs> Whatever later happens to be. If your mind is troubled with worrying life situations, can meditation retreat help or should you 
should you resolve to your issues before you come to clarify things? You will never resolve all your issues. There's always another one to resolve after this one, and another one after that. So if it's a big issue, it's okay, fair enough, try and resolve them, but in the end, so that is not, that's going to be endless. In the end, issues, I mean, what are those issues anyway? Sometimes we expect too much of the world, especially with other people. You can hardly control your own actions of body and speech and mind. So how are we going to deal with other people's actions of body, speech and mind? So after a while, you just, okay, what other people do, I don't agree with that, but I'm not going to take that seriously. No one can criticize me and say you're like this or you're like that. It's only like logic. How many people know, you know, why I'm a monk? What I do? I can give you some secrets, but then most of the time, how do you know I do what I do and why I do it? So after a while, you just you can't be criticised. And I really try hard never to criticise anybody else, never to tell you off. I don't know why you did what you did, but instead of actually sort of trying to find out why you did what you did, just let it go. It's much more fun doing it that way. Otherwise. Imagine how many people here, there's 60 of you and these other ones who just come in and there's a, the nuns here. Oh, if I got to worry what you think of me, I would go mad and crazy. So a long time ago, I decided, you can think of me whatever you want. If you like the teachings, wonderful. If you don't like them, wonderful. And I say that honestly, because if you don't like the teachings, it's great. And I can live a nice, peaceful life. I've been wanting to retire for a long time, but he never let me. So I need to make some worse teachings, <laughs> and worse jokes, and more confusing statements. And I need to work more on the psychic powers to make sure that uh, thing doesn't work anymore, which means that you can <laughs> turn it off and can sit silently instead. So. With worrying life situations, it's not worth worrying about, basically. Something bad is going to happen. Is it? What's the worst thing which can ever happen? <laughs> I don't know. Worse? You can't really sort of compare. One thing happens at a time. Is that good? Is that bad? Okay, Look, I'm not going to finish the questions again. Once there was a king who was hunting. You all know the story, don't you? The good, bad, who knows story? <laughs> Anyone doesn't know it? Only one, two, three. Okay, I don't mind. Here we go. So, a king was really liked hunting, and one day he was following this animal in the forest, and he was—he had the best horse, of course, and he ran so fast, not ran, but he rode so fast that he got separated from all the other soldiers who were supposed to be looking after him. No, that's not right, is it? 
No, I got that wrong. Okay, I'll tell it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your immense loving kindness. How can we develop such pure, deep metta that heals the suffering of others? Just learn how to smile, and smile from a pure place. And when you smile from a pure place, other people think that at least there's some people in this world who won't judge them. And the suffering of others, sometimes we judge others that they're suffering. Are they really suffering? That's not your business. Your business is just to be kind. Have a nice warm heart so people feel at ease, you know, when you're around. Is euthanasia allowed in Buddhism? The problem isn't euthanasia, the problem is youth all over the world. That's an old joke, sorry. <laughs> of course it's allowed. How did the Buddha die? Did he decide to die? Did three months before his Parinibbana, did he sit under the Chapala shrine and say, I renounce my life faculties, in three months I will die. When he ate that last meal, did he know what he was eating? So, did the Buddha commit suicide? Straight away people say, no he can't, he's a Buddha, he can't do that. What does the evidence show you? I only do that to stir you up. You can't judge a Buddha, but nevertheless, that there was one occasion, one occasion where one of these monks, he was already in, actually, he wasn't enlightened yet, but he thought he was, who decided to, they used to call it, there was almost like a tradition in those days, to cut your own throat. And when he did it, he realized he wasn't enlightened, but then pretty quickly, he made those last, uh, those last insights of letting go, and he did actually die. He was already in our hut. He made it just in time. And so the Buddha actually said that his death was blameless. So anyway, euthanasia has to be voluntary euthanasia. In other words, you have your choice. And it has to be a free choice. If it's a free choice, then it's not against any precepts. Parnati Pata Veramani, to avoid killing, it does literally mean killing other beings. Taking your own life, I'm not recommending this, but nevertheless it doesn't break any precepts. Especially if you do it and you're fully aware, you know what you're up to. And this was the case of the very first person in Australia who committed voluntary euthanasia. It was a fellow called Bob Dent. He was from the Northern Territory. He was a Buddhist. I never met him, but Ajahn Yonadamo did, because this Bob Dent, he came down to Perth for some sort of treatment, and Ajahn Yana sort of told him about what was going on. And he said the only reason he was uh, going to go for voluntary euthanasia 
was because his wife was looking after him so so 24-7 and she wouldn't you know, do, do any respite. She thought, you know, you're my husband, I'm your wife, I love you, I care for you. And so he said he was going to take this voluntary euthanasia to free his wife. He said he could endure the, dis he could endure the discomfort and the pain, but what really hurt him was seeing his wife of having no life of her own as long as he was really sick. You may not do that if you don't feel that's appropriate, but he had the right to do that. It was selfless. Anyway, he was a Buddhist. Dear Ajahn, getting affected by natural disasters, for example, losing your house due to floods, is it due to your own bad karma? Or does nature have its own cycles we just get affected by them randomly? It is like a mostly just random. These things happen in life. When I was in Albany with Ajahn um, Venerable Mudu, there was one of these ladies that there was a landslide and a few people lost their houses. You know, just the earth gave way and they weren't getting any sort of help from the local government, the people responsible, the water board. And one of those ladies, you know, it was the, the lady who was one of Mudu's main supporters, who was work, who was, had a restaurant, the Jupiter restaurant, and so she gave this woman a job. You know, and she lost her house, and you know, she just talked to her, and she said, how do you feel? He said, well, it's a great tragedy. But she said she had so many friends as a result of that tragedy. This is part of life. You can lose so much. So, losing your house due to floods is your own bad karma? No, not really. Sometimes it's just a bit of bad luck. It's when you build a house, it might get lost. When we build a retreat center, it might get burned to shreds by a bushfire. We know that. We accept that. We embrace that when we, we build something. So what if it happens? When it happens, it's just anachawata sankara, impermanent or compounded things. How can you get upset at that? It's in the contract of being born and building stuff. When we are meditating, sometimes feel sleepy, the awareness of breath goes away. How can we get that awareness again? Just wait. And I say this because I've been a monk a long time. I know what sleepiness is, froth and torpor. And when you fight that sleepiness, thinking that you have the power to overcome it, you waste a lot of energy and waste a lot of time. If you have sleepiness in your meditation, just be aware of it. You're not that aware. At least you can leave it be. Remember, even people who are drunk on alcohol, at least they can find their way home, somehow or other. They have a little bit of mindfulness. So you have enough mindfulness when you're sleepy to please don't do anything. Don't interfere with the natural process of your mind getting re-energized. And I say that because the old story in the suttas, I mentioned this to someone earlier, 
that there were, the Buddha was walking with his attendant Ananda, and they passed these two monks. The first monk was sitting perfectly straight, an excellent posture. I don't see anyone having that excellent posture here. Well done. <laughs> and when he saw this monk with a perfect posture, he told Ananda, I'm worried about that monk. That monk soon disrobed. Perfect posture. But then he went deeper into the forest, he saw another monk who was nodding. And he said to Ananda, he actually didn't say to Ananda, he smiled. and said, I'm not worried about that monk. Soon that monk became perfectly enlightened. When I first read that, it didn't make any sense. Sure, that first monk is putting effort in and getting a really good posture. The other monk was just being lazy, falling asleep. No, that first monk was letting go. The second, the, so the first, the nodding monk was letting go. The first monk sitting totally straight was the control freak, too big an ego. And I know that in a modern example, one of the friends, he was a French monk, and he was very quiet. And when we used to do these all-night meditations, sometimes you'd look at him and he never would nod. It was perfect posture every time. And he wouldn't say very much. And we all thought that this monk, this is staying up all night. We always thought that this monk was just so close to being enlightened. And I knew him about three years. And then when I was at another monastery, I heard he disrobed. What? How come? You know, he's really way more advanced than I am, I thought. But then, now after he disrobed, he gave me his arms bowl. And I still got it. That's the arms bowl I have now. So I don't want to ever give that one away because it reminds me of him. It reminds me, he said to me when he gave me the arms bowl, do you know what, Ajahn Brahm, sometimes I open my eyes and I looked at you, and your head was almost hitting the floor. <laughs> I was so jealous. I wish I could let go enough to be able to do that. But I was so afraid what other people might think of me. But that's one of the reasons why I was so tight inside. And I endured that for about, I don't know how many years. And I couldn't endure it any longer. That made me feel really sad, because I totally misjudged him. I thought he was almost like a perfect monk. But he was just trying too hard to live up to this idea of being a monk, instead of learning how just to relax. And to this day, I, please, I tell you, please relax. If you get sleepy, uh, if you're in the chairs, don't worry, we'll give you a, a safety belt. If you're on the ground over here, we'll give you a, a motorbike helmet. <laughs> so be careful. It's the restlessness, that controlling, that's the main problem. Dear Ajahn, in order to zoom in, could I use earbuds? Yeah, earbuds. As long as you haven't got some sort of uh, cricket match on the earbuds, because I know, I know there's many Sri Lankans here, and I know many Sri Lankans love their cricket. That's one of the reasons why when I went to Adelaide to give a talk at the Sri Lankan temple, hardly anyone turned up. They said, it's nothing to do with you, Ajahn Brahm. 
It's just we forgot the uh, Australia and, and Sri Lanka were playing a cricket match that day. And those Sri Lankans, they, they thought they were good Buddhists, but when it comes to the cricket or the, the Buddhism, the cricket won. <laughs> anyway, so you can use earbuds in order to sort of um, block out sounds, but don't use them to you know, have other stuff going into your ear hole. Are we to understand that the Buddha experienced jhana as a child and then not again until the day of his enlightenment? That seems to be what it says. When he went through all the jhana stages during that one meditation to reach Buddhahood? Yes. That's basically the only explanation to that. So how could that happen? How could this little boy get into a jhana just, you know, just almost automatically? No one was teaching him that. How come? In the Gatikara Sutta, Majjhima, was, was it 64 or something? Majjhima, no, not 64, but anyway, somewhere around there, 84 or something. Gatikara was a chief disciple of the former Buddha, Venerable Kaspar. This will be the last story because I've already gone over time. He was the chief supporter of Gatikara, of uh, the Kasapu, the Buddha. And in this story, our Buddha, Buddha Sakyamuni, sort of related that um, uh, Gatikara had a best friend called Jyotipala. And Jyotipala called the Buddha Kasapu like a baldy and a fake recluse. And I don't want to go and see him. This was Jyotipala. And then Gatikara tried every means to try and get his best friend Jyotipala to meet Kasapa the Buddha. In the end, by grabbing him by the hair, hair and trying to pull him. And you know just the way that in Chinese culture, or Buddhist culture, sorry, that you're not supposed to touch a person by the hair. That's considered to be really high and almost sacred. And even if I have an had to have the opportunity of shaving Ajahn Chah's hair, you'd have to ask permission first of all to touch him up there. That's how that's the culture. And so this Gatikara grabbed his best friend by the hair to try and pull him to see Casper. He said, You go that far? You know, to get me to go and see your bald headed, stupid Casper? He said, Yes. That's how much I think it's really a good idea, you see, Casper. So Jyotipala went. And as Jyotipala went, Gatikara said, could you please teach my best friend some Dhamma? And so Kasapa the Buddha did. And Jyotipala was so inspired and impressed. And he said, well, look, this is amazing stuff. Why don't you ordain with Kasapa, um, Gatikara? And he said, look, you know I can't. I've got two elderly parents who are both blind. I have to look after them. And so Jyotipala said, well, if you won't ordain, I will. And so Jyotipala became a monk under Kasapa. The story goes on, but the end of this, the Gatikara Sutta, the Buddha announces that Jyotipala, that was me in a previous life. I, said Sakyamuni Buddha, 
I was Jyotipala, who called Kasapa bawdy, said bad words about him. And also, this is in the Devata Samyutta that Gatikara comes to see the Buddha. Now, Gatikara is now, he was a non returner, and so he's in the Sudawasa, and came down to renew the acquaintance with his old friend. It just was told him that some of the, the Buddha's disciples had died, and they were also in the non returner realm, and now had actually been fully enlightened. And said, that we were friends in a previous life. I was Gatikara, you were Jyotipala, now you're the Buddha, uh, Buddha Gotama, well done. And two old friends renewing the acquaintance. That's in the suttas. I love those stories. So, Sakyamuni was a disciple of the previous Buddha, Kasapa. That's where he would have got his inclination or even experience of jhanas from the past. He knew them because he did them in his previous life. There's one woman here in Perth who told me when her, when she gave birth, that a few days after she stood in the hospital, the baby was breastfeeding. And after the baby had breastfeed, you know, she was laying back in the, the bed after the baby finished breastfeeding, the baby just crawled up to her tummy, crossed its legs in full lotus, put one hand over the other uh, in the perfect mudra, and started meditating. It freaked her out. We <laughs> said it happened. <laughs> anyway, okay. I think I've kept you interested long enough. <laughs> It's eight minutes, and I don't think you've been bored. Have you been bored? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sensational stories, anyway. Okay, so. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Okay, got some more to do tomorrow. Am I? I think I'm keeping up, just. Same extra ones as last time. Okay, I'll leave these here.